Glad to see you all this morning. We had a good crew. And want to always get a, a little bit of love to those who are with us via the YouTube's interweb. Glad to be with you guys today. We have two more sermons in Nehemiah this week, and then next week everything comes to a close. <laughs> all right. Uh, Nehemiah, it's been a joy. It's been a little bit of a slog at times. But interestingly, I feel like we've been tracking with this book. When we really prayed about Nehemiah, it was because we were coming back to the building. At that time, I sort of thought, well, we'll, we'll get back and we'll be up at full speed in a couple weeks. Every prediction I've made about this thing has been very, very wrong. But as we've gone, right, the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of the community, the reforming of God's people according to his word, the repopulating of the city, it's all sort of made sense for this very strange time in which we find ourselves. It all led up to last week, the climax of what was originally one book, two in our Bibles, Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of the exiles returning from Babylon over a period of a hundred years. And the climax is that moment that you find in chapter 12, verse 43. They are there with the people of God, the covenant community. They have renewed their promises and they are gathered to finally dedicate the wall and Verse 43 ends with this exclamation of joy. The Hebrew word is used five times to provide emphasis. They are full of joy. It is done. It is finished. The wall is done. The temple is rebuilt. God's people are here. We're worshiping in the way that God has called us to do. And the joy has gone out from Jerusalem to all the surrounding areas. That, uh, most commentators believe, is the climactic moment of the book, the dedication of the wall. And that's sort of what we've been living out in real time, right? A couple weeks ago, we brought on some new servant leader, foot washer, chief repenters. We also call those people elders. We ordained them. Then we had some baptisms, some exciting baptisms, a reminder that even in the plague, God is growing his people. And last week, Kempton, uh, our brother Kempton, who's a, a Navajo man, Reformed Anglican church planner. You know how many of those there are in the world? That many. Amazing. And God has called him here from a life from, you know, Gallup to Silver City to Denver back to Santa Fe to plant a church in our city and preach the gospel. Climate. Moments of joy. And now we get a chapter and a half of real life. What now? What now? After the, the adrenaline and the dopamine and everything is kind of leveled off, and we're all coming down from that spiritual high and the excitement of these incredible moments, a chapter and a half of real life. And so the question of this text in particular is this, will the people of God persevere in the promises they have made after the high? Will they continue to act according to God's word even when they're not in, in the thrill of feeling it? And I don't think it's speculation to assume that at this point in their story, the people of God in Israel, in the holy city of Jerusalem, are exhausted. It's been a long road of blood, sweat, and tears to get to this point. They are tired, they are exhausted, and they are therefore tempted with the very same thing we are tempted with right now, because it's August. Can you believe it? And none of us a couple months ago thought we were going to be here in August. The temptation is toward apathy. 
It's toward becoming lax, giving up, or maybe, you know, retiring from that which God has called us to do. You can retire from your job, but you don't get to retire from your vows, right? From your wife or your, your kids or the church and the city that God has given you to love and serve. They're experiencing the low after the high, and I just wonder how many of us can relate to this right now. As this has gone on, you just feel tired. Man, I've been feeling weird kinds of tired. Tired that don't really make sense. I told my beautiful wife about this tired, and she said, yes, God has given me a solution. It's called exercise. I was like, ah, babe, no, I don't mean to throw under the bus, because she is completely right about that. I exercised six years ago. It was fun. I've prayed about it a lot since then. And I just told her, I said, you're right, you're right, exercise. But this is a different thing because normally I know how to, you know, I know how to deal with the, the ebb and flow of the dad bod. And I, I know when I'm, you know, this, and this is just a different kind of tired. Now, now we're, we're up against, do I swing the pendulum? Do I fall into apathy? Because I think if we did, in some ways, we would really feel justified in doing it. As the Jews would have in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago. I mean, they've only been working at it for 100 years. Zerubbabel came back with the first wave of exiles. You can read about that in the first chapters of Ezra. Under the decree of King Cyrus, they returned. And they worked. They rebuilt the temple. Then Ezra returned, the great priest, Ezra, and they reinstated the worship of God. And then finally, Nehemiah, they rebuilt the walls a hundred years. Don't you think it's time for a break? Don't you think there's some people in here who are going, yeah, we've worked really hard. This has been great. And now you will see me in Florida. Instead, I think the Lord surprises us in this text. At least he did me. Because when I first read it, I was like, what in the world am I going to preach here? The Lord surprises us in this text with three stories. Three stories about their active, chosen obedience in light of God's promises to them. Now, the first two stories, the one about pro providing for the needs of the priests and Levites, and the one about the separating of the Ammonites and Moabites, these are a bit anachronistic. As you'll see in our text, verse 44 and verse 13, 1, on that day. So in theory, these things happened while Nehemiah was gone, had returned for a 10 to 12-year span to be with Artaxerxes. The last story, picking up in verse 4, now before this, returns us to Nehemiah's first-person perspective. Before we get to the, the full brunt of the situation at the end of 13, the Lord provides a bit of an interlude here. What does it mean to come from a place of excitement and expectation Certainty about the future, trips planned, things I'm going to do, grandkids I'm going to see, highs. To what now? What do we do when the going gets tough? Three stories about their obedience. And the heart of the point is this, that they are given to us to show us that God's people push back against apathy. They're honest about it. They know they can't escape it. They are indeed tired. But there's no neutrality about it. You're, you're either going to be growing or you're going to be dying. Life with the Lord Jesus is like being in an ocean or a river. You're not going to stay in the same place. You're going somewhere. Their lives, their hearts, their affections, their worship, these things are not neutral. And so they must, they must actively push against the apathy that they're tempted toward.
The main point of the text, therefore, is this. If we, as God's children, want to persevere in God's blessing, then we must act according to his promises. If we want to persevere in God's blessings, we must act. We must be doers of the word and not merely hearers. But what's interesting about our text is that if someone comes to you, right, and they're hurting and they're tired, they're exhausted, they've been working on something a hundred years and they're ready to take a break. And your word to them is, oh man, let me tell you three stories about how you need to try harder. Wow, thanks, I'll go talk to someone else and get my money back. So the question in this text isn't just will we push against the apathy that can so easily creep into our souls. The question is, can we? And if we can, how will we? I think for those who are coming off of high and climactic moments into the malaise and challenges of reality, whether it's the dedication of the wall or all the promises you made to yourself on New Year's Eve. I mean, what fools we all were this last New Year's Eve. 2020 is going to be the best year yet. Regardless of it's the former or the latter, the text, I think, shows us three ways that we, by God's grace, can really push, push back against apathy and be useful and effective now in this time, this place, this city for the kingdom of God as we love him and love our neighbors. The first is this, we must care for the church. We must care for the church. That's the first story that we just read. They had made pledges and promises in chapter 10 as they renewed covenant with God that they were going to care for the church. And now they're doing it. They do as they said. They show by their actions, not merely their words, that God's house and God's people are a priority. Not only a priority, but a necessity to push back against apathy to take care of God's house. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the scripture shows us that greatness and godly joy isn't merely celebrating the highs, but sticking to what God has told us to do, even in the low places. Commitments. Understanding our identity, not in you know, what feels good all the time and constantly pursuing that high moment of pleasure, but instead that we are a part of a real body. And I love that. I love that the church, and I get to talk about myself a little bit here, you know, isn't just some upper echelon of professionals, you know, the Pentabarith, the Gettys, the Rothschilds, and Colonel Sanders. That's not what the church is. The church isn't just up here and then all you lowly people down here who come in once a week for a couple songs and a lecture. The New Testament tells us that we're a kingdom of priests, that we are the holy people of God, that the Holy Spirit dwells with inside of you, and you are the temple of God, that we all need Jesus. And my job and John's, it's, it's merely for us all to be led to Jesus and left there. And even more than that, to equip you, the saints, the holy ones, the ones who are set apart by God's grace, to do the ministry that God has given you to do, whatever that ministry might be. And I love the Lord. He's got a good sense of humor, and he's creative. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry doesn't mean find the worst thing you can possibly imagine, because then that'll be beating yourself up, and you'll get crowns in heaven, and do that for God's glory. 
Equipping the saints for the work of ministry is what has God already given you that you are good at, that you love, that you excel in? Now go do it joyfully in public for God's glory and invite people in. This last week, I was uh, hanging out with a, a couple, started coming to our church, and was talking to them and talking to the guy and said, you know, what are you into? You know, what do you do in your spare time? And, you know, I'm kind of used to the normal answers. Well, I love the outdoors. We love art, love sports. He said, but I got one that's a little bit weird. I said, weird. Welcome to Santa Fe. You know, you're in good hands. Try me. What do you got? And he goes, well, you're not going to believe it, but I, I really, really love like model train sets. Model train sets, huh? Okay, cool. Uh, check, please. No, I'm, you know, I just got to thinking, how cool is that? And yet I know two or three other guys in this church that would lose their mind to meet another friend who loves to hang out, talk, and play with model trains. So whatever your thing is, we are the saints of God equipped for ministry. Celebrating and the greatness and faithfulness of God isn't merely in the highs but in being a real part of a body ongoing, taking care of the church. This quote from Derek Kidner sums it up pretty well. He says, It's one thing to shout for joy on a great occasion, but another to offer the ongoing sacrifice of praise and to make realistic provision for the church's needs. That is true victory. And so I think part of the question that we need to be asking as we come and gather every Sunday, as you all are watching from home, is who's not here? Who haven't we seen in a while? Who's the Lord putting on your heart right now? I mean, literally think about it. I don't want to get like mid-school summer camp weird and make y'all bow your heads and write it down, but I will. Don't make me do it. As you think to yourself, all right, Lord, who haven't I seen in a while? Who comes to mind? These are the people that the Lord has put on our heart to say, okay, man, send a, send a text. Pick up the, the phone. Turn the little knob a bunch of times. Make a phone call. Write a card. Because if we want to push back on the apathy, right, the world says it's too crazy. There's too much civil unrest. There's too much going on. Everything you've loved and cared about is being undermined. Hunker down. Get in your bunker. You know, Make sure to cash out when the time is right. Make sure you take care of yourself. When all that is being preached in our ear, the Lord says, no, push back on that. Care for the church. And this is exactly what the people of God do. And in that way, they fulfill the words of James chapter 1 and 2. They are not only hearers of the word, but doers. And that's why James says in his great little book, love the book of James. He was probably the brother of Jesus. It's a book of wisdom literature in the New Testament. And so we get in James 1 and 2 this thing about not only being hearers, but doers. And then James says, look, I, people can say they have faith. But if you really have faith, then out of that faith will overflow and blossom works. Now look, it's faith alone that saves you. It's not your works that save you. But the faith that saves you by faith alone is never alone. And out of that faith overflows the blessings and the goodness of God, not just to your immediate family, but to your city. So if you see places out in this city and out in our world right now where there's destruction and violence and injustice and rubble, that's exactly where God wants to plant you, water you, and grow you into a beautiful flower so that he can remind the people around you that he isn't done with this place. That God is not done with this place. He's not done with you. 
That's why we must care for the church. It's why we must care for each other. This leads to the second story that we get in our text because part of caring for the church also means that we must purify the community. That sounds like a weird thing to say to talk about purification and purification rituals in the Old Testament. But but here's really what it means. Purifying the community means that they must be honest about their propensity toward apathy because of their idols. The people of God, that's us, the children of God, we must be honest and therefore work against that tendency. Because it never happens all at once. You, You don't fall into, you know, slipping away from the Lord and acts of disobedience and evil just poof out of thin air. You know this. It's always death by a thousand cuts. It's always being removed from community, not being known, not being vulnerable, being afraid. I can do it on my own. And then one day somebody just shows up and the explosion happens. That's why we must purify the community. Now, it's it's in an interesting context, which should grate a bit on our modern ears. The exclusion of foreigners? I mean, I thought the gospel was about inclusion. I thought here at Christ Church, we said anybody, anybody in Santa Fe, even the sketchiest, weirdest people who we love can walk through these doors. Anybody, period. And if you're a regular here, and if this is your church family, I better see you being the first person to move toward them and love on them in a not weird way. Anybody. So what is this bit about excluding foreigners? What do you mean the the Ammonites and the Moabites? Well, look, God's people are not being haters here, okay? They're being honest about their need to be saturated, not in messages that tell lies about who God is, but messages that speak the truth. They're not haters. This separation, this exclusion, it's nothing to do with uh, anything having pertaining to race. It's not anything to do with political affiliations. All of these tribes, by the way, are under the political reign and rule of King Artaxerxes. No questions asked. Instead, what we're talking about here is really purity in the sense that Paul discusses it in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, keep yourselves pure. If anything is good or true or noble or righteous or pure, think on these things. Or perhaps echoing the words of the Apostle John in 1 John, my beloved little children, keep yourself pure from idols. God's people must understand that they have to work actively against the apathy wherein sin creeps in. Against the idols of their own heart and their minds. Idols from without and from within. It's interesting, right? On the one hand, there's messages coming to them from the foreign kingdoms and foreign gods of, you know, our way is better. Worship our God. Or maybe let's just intermarry and we can form some packs and have a little bit of your God, a little bit of my God. But Jesus reminds us that's too easy. Too easy to come into church because I see that you've got your collared shirt on. Congratulations. You're looking good. You took a shower today, most of you, not all. You know, got it all put together, cleaned up, and boom. You know, here we are. No idols that you can observe on the outside. What does Jesus say to the religious leaders? So I should be hearing this most of all. Jesus said, look, it's, it's not what you put into your body that that makes you corrupt. It's it's out of the overflow of the heart. It's out of the overflow of the heart that all this stuff comes and the mouth speaks. 
And so we have to be actively working against apathy, not just in the messages that are coming to us, but the brokenness that's inside of us. We have to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. We have to be putting sin to death. To quote the great Puritan scholar John Owen, it's a fabulous little book called The Mortification of Sin, Putting Sin to Death. John Owen asked this question, do you mortify and put to death your sin? By God's grace, do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. For you will either be killing sin or it will be killing you. These are the options before us. Again, there is no neutrality. And as I read this passage this week, I, I felt convicted. I, mean, I didn't really think I was going to be very convicted when I preached these weird stories out of Nehemiah. And here I was going, wow, I entertain a lot of stuff that I shouldn't entertain. Things I think, things I hear, things I watch. It's true that there, there's a an increasing desensitization that happens in our hearts. And I got to thinking, man, stuff that I probably would have turned off 10 or 15 years ago doesn't really bug me in the way that it used to. And don't mishear me. I'm not telling you to go home and burn all your CDs and throw your TV in the trash. Please do not do that. We're weird enough because we love Jesus. Don't add insult to injury. No, listen to your music. Watch your TV. The point of the text is that we do it but with the mind of Christ. To purify the community doesn't mean we get rid of all the bad stuff. That's ridiculous. We're supposed to be in the world and not of it. Purifying the community means that we submit everything to the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we take every thought captive and make it bow the knee to the truth about who God is for us in his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there was conviction here for me, but also the kindness of God. A reminder that for us to develop a biblical worldview is critical. To get in the word, to know the gospel so that we cannot be lied to. Because at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Purifying your hearts and souls. It's either your job, your responsibility, your work. And by the way, most of you need to step up your game. Or it's the finished work of Jesus for you on the cross. So I love this quote from Scott Sauls. He's a pastor in the far-off country of Nashville, Tennessee. And he tweeted this this week. He said, there's a, a tale of two cities in the story of two famous last words. First, the last words of a man who they called Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. Supposedly, as tradition has it, his last words were, my children, Strive without ceasing, and then strive again. For only in your striving can you become nothing. Strive without ceasing. Well, then there were the last words of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, the Jewish carpenter who was hung up on a tree, who said he was God the Son, who was cursed so that our sins might be forgiven. And his last words were oh so categorically different. Instead, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And Scott Saul says, give me Jesus. Now look, the last thing I want to do is get up here and be some pastor who builds up straw man arguments and caricatures, other traditions and religions and worldviews. 
If you've read much of the life of the Buddhist story or his teachings, I think you should be humble enough to admit with me that in so many ways, he was braver than most of us are, often. Indeed, when he left his house on that fateful day, what did he discover except for one instance of suffering after another to the point that it was so heavy and soul-crushing upon him that he could come to no other conclusion but that all is suffering. And you know what I've thought to myself, and I don't know if you guys agree with me on this. If you don't, let's go get coffee and hang out. But I don't know how you would be in the time we're in right now without Jesus. Like if you really thought this was it, if you really thought this is the only world you get, So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Power, pleasure, get yours, have fun. I think you would have to walk the way of Siddhartha. I think you would have to say, give me a break. It was easy to say that on the mountaintop when everything was great, before the civil unrest and all the things going on and all the fear and uncertainty, but but now? And so I consider this individual, to at least be honest and brave in that sense, to go out into the world and to see, yes, there is suffering, but what is the answer? Oh, what a, what a sad answer. Escape. Escape from the suffering. Move away from it. Climb to the top of the mountain. Forget yourself. Empty yourself. Become nothing of yourself. And don't cease striving until that has been accomplished. There's another word for that. It's called death. And at least in this way of thinking, there's no resurrection. That is why we must purify the community. And we are the community and have our own souls purified by the gospel. Because in the gospel is the only good news we could ever hope to hear. It is finished. Now, if you've heard this good news, you can move on to the third point. Nehemiah's first person recounting of the reforms that he began to enact, which take up the entirety of chapter 13. He's been gone now for anywhere from 10 to 12 years, and he comes back, and what does he see? He sees that the people of God need reform. He's not afraid to push back on the abuses that have crept in through the apathy of compromise. And again, can you just relate to the people with me? A hundred years, they're tired, but it's more than that. God, where are you? (laughs) We built the wall. We built the temple. We've reinstated worship. And we started off really good, like you and I always do. When we rededicate and experience revival, they started off great. That was year one, year two, uh, year three. And, and you can just hear them, them wondering, what, what's going on, Lord? Where are you? We did what you asked us to do. Now, where's the blessing? Where's the reward? Where's the Messiah? Where's the promise kept? And God wants to show us so powerfully this morning that that we cannot make him a means to our end. Because knowing him and being known by him in the deepest sense, that is the end itself. And that's why we must deal with needed reforms. Nehemiah comes back, and what does he find? He finds that the pinnacle of the people of God, the center point of their entire community, the hub on the wheel, the temple itself, is being maligned and neglected. And if you were a Jew reading this story, especially in the 400 years from Malachi to Christ, you would have heard this as a really big deal. You could do a lot of stuff, right? You could sin against your friend, your brother, your sister, whoever. 
But to mess with the temple was a big deal. So guess who we meet again? Tobiah. It's always Tobiah. Anyone here like Seinfeld? The show Seinfeld, have you heard of it? Okay, a few of you like it? Good. It's kind of hard to pick something that, that fits for everybody here, okay? I'm doing my best. You know when Jerry goes, Newman. Newman, that's how you should always say Tobiah's name. Oh, Tobiah, here he is again. This is the same guy in chapter 2 that with Sanballat verbally opposed the return of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. In chapter 4, and Kempton reminded us last week, he mocked the building of the wall and said about it that not even a fox could go on top of this wall if it didn't fall down. Of course, at the dedication, there were two full choirs singing with gusto. But it gets worse than that. He was so angry with Nehemiah that in verse 6, chapter 1 and 15, he wrote letters to try to undermine his leadership and authority and intimidate Nehemiah into bowing the knee. Now Nehemiah's gone, apathy's crept in, sin creeps in, and he schemes in the temple to get a room, a chamber, to put his furniture. He leverages his friendship with the priest and his good name, for it is a Jewish name, and yet he's also a ruler, so it's clear that he had clout and power, to mismanage church funds, an ancient problem, and precisely why I'm glad we have elders. But you know what? It all seems so innocent, doesn't it? When you read the text, I mean, come on. Nehemiah's gone. There's a room in the temple. Is it that big of a deal? I mean, the priest is cool with it. I'm just going to put some of my furniture in there. You know, it was too expensive to rent a, a donkey U-Haul, so I'm going to just use this spot for a little bit. But Nehemiah shows us that there is an emphatic no to those questions. Oh, no big deal. Just a little bit of sin. Just a little bit of entertaining of that apathy and that compromise. So much so here that Nehemiah clearly channels what Jesus does 400 years later when he goes into the, the temple courts and overthrows the tables of the money changers. And he says this is to be a house of prayer, not a place of commerce and business and profit. This is God's house. In the same way, Nehemiah, it says, is angry and throws Tobias' furniture out of the chamber. I think what God wants us to see here is not that he's mad at you and he's getting ready to beat you up and you are one lightning bolt away from being one step too far. That's not the point of the story. Because guess what? You're not Tobiah. Who are you? You are the temple of the living God because the Holy Spirit lives within you. What God is showing us here is that he will not be mocked in our lives. Where there are chambers in our soul and in our heart that we've said, yeah, no big deal. I do what I want there. That one's for my stuff, my furniture. God says, no. Because of my son, Jesus Christ, because of my grace for you, I'm not going to leave you to your own devices. I'm not going to leave you to sin creeping in. I'm going to cleanse your temple so that you might know how much I love you and so that you might more fully love the people who I have placed around you. In the humility of that glorious truth, it also allows us to ask this question, where is there sin creep in your life? Where is there sin creep in mine? This leads us to the end of our text. And perhaps all the way back to our call to worship, Psalm 51, because if I'm honest about care for the church and purity and needed reforms, 
I'm also honest about my struggles and my apathy and my being tired and my feeling like, yeah, okay, whatever. Psalm 51 reminds us that God is not done. And so Nehemiah 12 and 13 presents us with this charge, with a challenge to those who are not only hearers, but to be doers. The charge is this, fight the apathy in your own life. Fight the apathy in your own life. Don't give up. Don't give in. Trust in the Lord. Get in his word. Beg for him to help you. Stir up your affections. Preach to yourself. Fight the apathy in your own life. And why? Only why? And this answers the question of can we? Because God never gets apathetic on you. Even after your highs, even after your promises, even after your moments of spiritual renewal and revival, when it goes back to normal, when tired and apathy kicks in, God never gets apathetic on you. Instead, he calls you his child. As we'll hear during communion, he calls you by name. I thought this was a great quote to wrap it up. One commentator has put it this way, to help us see Jesus in the story, consider the flow of the book. From Ezra to Nehemiah, the flow of the book is given to us as it was to those early Hebrews through the names that are used to move the history of redemption forward and point us to the Messiah. Zerubbabel, his name means sown in Babylon. And we're confused, we're worried, we're unsure about the hope that awaits us. But Ezra, his name means Yahweh, I am that I am, has helped. And finally, Nehemiah's name means God brings comfort. Ezra and Nehemiah show us in one story that God's plan is to move his people from the slavery of apathy to the salvation of joy in Christ, an active obedience that creates a society that becomes, in every city, a city on a hill. This commentator asks, as you hear those names, do you hear your own name as well? Perhaps instead you hear God saying, and speaking the name of Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But know this, you are the son of his son. You are the son or daughter of his son. And so with you, God is well pleased. That good news is all we have to push back against the apathy that creeps in. But not only push back on apathy, but to become the people of God that he has called us to be in this world, to persevere so that we might receive God's blessing and give it away, and to do that in the world. Even as the world goes crazy and the nations rage and we're all watching too much news, do you think there are any lost causes? There are no lost causes for God. And I don't mean policy and political movements and all that stuff. It all looks great on paper. What I mean is the people who are made in the image of God that he has planned to call to himself, there are no lost causes. No one who comes by faith will be excluded. And so, yes, we are called to act, but we only act in the action already achieved as we remember that he first loved us. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. That while we were yet sinners, the Apostle Paul says, consumed by our idols, false gods, thinking we could make our own way and do it on our own, you had already loved us. You were like the father already running out to the prodigal son. So Lord, would you help us as your people and as your temple and as your children to care for the church? Would you help us to be purified as a community according to your word and by your grace? To hear the word spoken over us, it is finished. Lord, and wherever there are chambers in our own hearts where we are so foolishly trying to hide our furniture, like a little kid trying to hide what they did wrong from their parents, you know and you love us. Would you deal with us, Lord, by your grace? Deal with us according to your steadfast love. Not strive without ceasing, but it is finished. And would you help us to push against apathy, to not get bogged down by this feeling that, you know, it's all, it's all too much. It's all gone bad. Just need to protect myself. No, instead, would you protect us with eternal life? And then would you turn us and send us to those who so desperately need it? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.